Welcome to Afterlives of Ancient Egypt, in which we discuss ancient history and relevant current events. I'm Kara Cooney, and I love to take deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. So let's get started. Hello, everyone. Hey there. We have a special guest on today, Maggie Gioga. Hello, Maggie. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'll jump right in with your bio. So Maggie is the assistant professor of Egyptology at the University of Chicago and a junior fellow in the Society of Fellows in Critical Bibliography. Her research focuses on ancient Egyptian literature, scribal culture, textual transmission and reception in both ancient Egypt and later periods. Maggie earned her PhD in Egyptology from Brown, where she also completed a concurrent MA in comparative literature. Wow. She's currently working on a monograph on the reception of the history of the Middle Egyptian poem, The Teachings of Amenemhat, from circa 1550 to 500 BCE. And she also maintains an ongoing project on Jean Terrasson's 1731 novel, Sethos, uh, whose depiction of Egypt strongly influenced numerous 18th century authors, artists, and thinkers, and still underlies many contemporary beliefs about ancient Egypt, which I didn't know about, and I had to Google, and I was like, oh, this is so cool. So we can add that into discussion also. But thank you for joining us today, Maggie. We really appreciate it. And today's episode, we're going to be talking about your work on the teachings of Amenemhat. So first, how did you get into wisdom literature or these instruction texts? Um, what drew you to them? And as always, can you give our listeners a little background into what these texts are? I think, you know, we call them didactic literature, wisdom literature, wisdom texts. Um, what should our yeah. listeners know about them? Yeah. 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 I'm, as I'm looking puzzled, it's because I don't feel like I have actually a great answer for what drew me to them. I think I've been drawn to ancient Egyptian literature more generally and somehow found my way to this mm -hmm. specific text. Um, in part because I think that I, I think we don't actually understand it as well as we think we do. And mm -hmm. I think that's true of, of many of these texts, but it felt more uh, obvious and like more of an impediment. Um, to further study for this one. So that's what brought me to this one. I'll, I can give a little background on wisdom texts before we get into this one. Um, sure. So this is a genre, um, like wisdom literature in general, is a genre that a lot of other cultures in the world have. It's one that we don't really like read for fun anymore, um, but we did have it, you know, a few centuries ago. It's basically like, as you said, didactic, literature so poetry like literature that's using poetic language um, and like playing with form and style um, but for this explicit purpose of educating about something and in ancient Egypt it's usually going to be um, framed as a father educating a son about something um, a lot of them are about like just how to live in general how to be a good and moral person um, maybe with the implication of how to like look like a good and moral person um there some of them are very fixated on social standing um others are like how to be a specific profession and in the case of Amenemhat 
uh, and this other one, the teaching for Mary Carre, those ones are about how to be king. And and Maggie, I have to say that I disagree that we don't have this genre anymore. I think we just do it through a completely different medium that's usually not written. And I would say that anytime you go on Instagram or TikTok, and I went down this rabbit hole of trad wives Instagram not long ago, where you have these women saying, you know, like teaching their daughters, teaching other women, this is how I sew my clothes. This is how I make the homemade sourdough for my husband when he comes home. This is how I do all of these things. And they're done in a sometimes, maybe not a poetic style, but sometimes things are put to music and it's very aesthetically pleasing. And and there's um, a class structure and hierarchy involved. There's gender norms. There's there's all kinds of things that are in instruction texts. And there's a genre of this for male influencers too, like how to be a good man um, in certain societies, uh, different cultures. So it's 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 out there. Um, and yeah, I guess maybe... I don't know. Yeah, like in the aughts or the 1990s, what would it have been like some sort of self help sort of book? But um, yeah. yeah, maybe they're, they're, I just have yeah. too narrow a, a view of what constitutes. I mean, certainly these issues are always going to be concerns. Um, so maybe I need to broaden my own <laughs> snobbish conception of what constitutes literature and discourse now. Yeah, but it, but it's a way it's a way of writing to get a subgroup of a culture all on the same page and how things should be done, what is accepted and what is not. Um, like, you know, my mother made me read parts of Emily Post that, but, mm. but you guys do even know who Emily Post is. Nope. No, it's an, it's a, it's a volume on etiquette oh, that, that, yes, that, <laughs> my, that I had to read part of. Um, and my mother sent me to finishing school. So yes, that's for a young Wait, woman. Yes. Finishing school yes. <laughs> still exists. It does, in Texas, I mean, in Texas it does. I mean, wow. and I think I'm almost 30 years older than you, Maggie, so. But yes, it, it did exist. And it certainly existed when I was growing up as a Gen Xer in a certain cultural milieu or what my mother wanted my milieu to be. And so, um, yeah, my, my mother wore gloves every day until, um, you know, and, like and certainly to the hat. Yeah, like the hat and gloves and mm-hmm. you can never find your gloves and all of this. That was that was quite normal for her growing up. Um, I didn't wear gloves or that, but um, but I did have to learn how to fold a napkin correctly, what a place setting was, and how you greet somebody properly, and um, you know, just silly things that we don't pay attention to anymore. But but you know, there's there's enough out there in the in the world of media for where one fits, how one fits, mm-hmm. um, it, with whatever identity one needs or it is having imposed upon them. So there's more freedom. It perceived freedom, but is there? <laughs> but but to your point, Kara, that like TikTok or Twitter or, or whatever we're having kind of tell us how we're supposed to be is much more democratized, right? Yeah. As to, to Maggie's point that especially the teachings of Amenemhat is telling the future king or well, the dead king to his son, the heir of how to be a good king. So at yeah. least these texts are very, they're, specific audience or who they're supposedly talking to is very narrow. And so going back to wisdom literature in ancient Egypt writ large, what are the other texts about? So we have, you said Mary Kare and Amenemhat are about the king. Um, so these are different 
the other wisdom texts are maybe to just elite men in general. And I should clarify that um, I am mostly talking Middle Egyptian wisdom texts. This mm-hmm. is a long tradition that goes well past uh, the Middle and New Kingdoms, which is when I'm focused on, I mean, really the New Kingdom. Um, so the ones that I'm most familiar with, we have Amenemhat and Merikare, which are about or ostensibly about how to be king. Sneak preview for later when I say I think it's actually about more <laughs> things than that. Um, we have others like the teaching of Kedi, which um, isn't actually really about teaching how to do something. Mm-hmm. It's really about convincing the son in the frame narrative um, that it's better to be a scribe than to be anything else. That one is really like a long series of like Everyone really over suck. the top. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really over the top descriptions of how all the other jobs out there suck. Um, and then we have yeah. uh, things like the teaching of Tahotep, which deals with things kind of like napkin folding, as Kara mentioned before. It, it does actually explicitly deal with table manners, but also like um, how to be an upstanding elite man, mm-hmm. how to be generous toward the people of lower standing than you, how to conduct yourself in conflicts, how to treat your wife. Um, so they really kind of run the gamut of of how-to topics, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and you keep coming back to like the framing structure being always from a father to his son, which when I was reading your article, it really stuck out to me. Is Do you think there's anything to be made of it beyond just like patriarchal, that was ancient Egypt? You had a patriarchal teaching and a father to son, the familial relationship. Um, why never like boss to lower and obviously not mother to daughter because these texts are written by men for men. Yeah, although actually there is one copy of the oh, teaching really? of Amenemhat that has a partially preserved colophon that seems like it might have the name of a woman mm-hmm. in the place where we would expect the name of the copyist. But as I said, very partially preserved, so unsure. But yes, uh, definitely like framed as if it's written for men. I mean, having an instruction for a king doesn't mean that the instruction's written for kings. It, it's it's a way for everyone to know their place, and it's a way of setting up a social model. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So I'm just gonna say that all of these instructions, they're not just useful for the people necessarily who are mentioned in them or before being instructed. Yeah. I think it's it's broader than that. That's it lets all. everyone know their place. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of it is framed as like this, like inheritance of knowledge. And mm-hmm. it feels especially poignant with the teaching of Amenemhat because we have like, not just the inheritance or like the bequeathing of knowledge, but also of this position and social standing and, um, he repeatedly draws attention to this, to kingship as like a through line that goes uh-huh. through the generations. And I think that for a lot of the people reading it, which is going to be um, lots of scribes and scribal apprentices, probably more people than that. And I could say more about that uh-huh. in a few minutes. But most of the copies that we have seem to have been copied by scribal students. Uh-huh. And a lot of those students are being taught how to be scribes by their fathers or uncles or grandfathers. So there is like a, a patriarchal structure even to 
this professional Mm -hmm. education system. And so I think that probably gives um, maybe some common ground when you aren't a prince reading how to be king. You know, it it makes it recognizable to you and also maybe makes it sound uh, more credible because you're being instructed in real life and other things by your dad Mm -hmm. or or like not necessarily even a biological dad, but a father figure. We definitely know um, from Daryl Medina, for example, um, that some people educate like their children or their, sorry, their friends' kids and they like Mm -hmm. switch and we like have all these family relations. So Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be biological um, father-son relationships to have this kind of valence Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it. and though they're written, a lot of these instructions don't they have like an element of of verbal transmission? That's actually as my well? next question. Is, oh my god, is, <laughs> is perfect? Which is a, you know a major aspect of your article was how are these texts interacted with? We see them as something to be read, um, versus heard, right? But I think we don't think about the being heard as much, which is something that your article touches on. This is like a really thorny question mm-hmm. that I, because we just don't know the answer is we just don't have a great sense of how these are being transmitted orally we know that they are um because literacy is so restricted in ancient egypt um and i think these texts are from an elite context but i don't think they're only being read or listened to by elites and even if within this category of the elite you know mm-hmm. not everyone in it is literate um, so I think that there is some oral performance of these happening, um, but we don't know exactly what those contexts would have been, and who would have been in the audience. We do know that they are all framed as a father, Jedef, he says. Uh-huh. So <laughs> even within the written text, it is being framed as an act of oral performance uh-huh. that's then being written down, that's then probably being recited some of the um manuscripts that we have seem to have mistakes in them that that suggest that at least some of these are being um learned by dictation or um Mm -hmm. that they're writing from dictation Mm -hmm. or that they're like learning them orally first and memorizing them and then writing them Mm. later we have like phonological errors in them so there's definitely some kind of performance happening alongside the written tradition it's just really hard for us to see today we were just reading the instructions of amen and or amen in late egyptian and and there's many sections that introduce the instruction with the word rao or utterances uh-huh. um and so but you don't have that in the middle egyptian text you have he says he speaks um but it's there seems to be a level of orality to the to the late Egyptian instruction, which is which is pretty damn interesting. You're exactly right. We don't know the context. Is it are, are they sitting around and having things dictated to them? Is this something that you might sit around, you know, by a fire and read to people? Seems odd, but who knows what kinds of entertainment there is out there. Um, but yeah, there, but there was a definite oral element in um, what we were reading. I think it's Richard Parkinson who has said maybe it's comparable to if you picture like um, a big like 
centuries ago, a party at a noble's house mm-hmm. and all of these people in their finery and then somebody like a bard type mm-hmm. figure performing, like singing a poem that maybe that's kind of what's happening. And then um, you could discuss like the morality, kind of have a philosophical discussion about some of these moralizing statements or something like that. I yeah. totally get that for the hymns for Simwaster the Third and how he's such a badass military guy. And I can totally imagine the the bard coming in and saying, and Simwaster, you are this and you are that and you have smote and smitten all of the enemies in this particular way. Um, the instructions are harder to place. I, I don't know. In our minds, I think we can go to like a hyper court Versailles or or some, you know, Elizabethan court in an easier fashion. Um with with what's preserved to us, but then how elites maintain elite culture um, without necessarily being in a court situation. I, I think it's harder. Um, yeah. To me, it just, it just reeks of school. Like, yeah. that's what you do to kids. <laughs> like, you get to them early and, like, shape them in, like, how you're supposed to be. Like, you were talking about your finishing school. It just reeks of things that we adults do to children. And so, like, the whole idea that these are... You know, you speak about the copies being sloppy, which I love to think about these kids like learning Egyptian and learning to write and um, having these like sloppy copies or inaccurate copies. And they're also being enculturated into how elite men, they're boys, but like will become men are supposed to also act. So it's like a two birds with one stone. They're learning to write, but also being instructed on how they're supposed to behave and very conservative like i had to learn the foxtrot no one dances the foxtrot but they I were still the foxtrot. Hold- really you do <laughs> yeah. but they were holding on you know maybe someday we'll have mm-hmm. these dance parties where everyone's going out and doing the foxtrot um i'm glad you can dance the foxtrot maggie but oh, i yeah. can't anymore but yes <laughs> i don't think i could anymore either let's see let's bring it back yeah, yeah when i was in eighth yeah. grade we had uh ballroom dancing classes yes, that everybody exactly. signed up for yeah that is a finishing school that is something where you're you're made to go and do something that puts you into a certain social milieu and you can then participate mm-hmm. and and find your way but it's um we're exposed to these things too and if we think of instructional type texts i mean they're out there for us we just don't think of them in this hyper formal mm-hmm. um papyrus and ink kind of way yeah. But that's what I'm saying. So like if this is such a major component of scribal school, I again, I'm asking you a question that we don't really maybe have a good answer for. But what was scribal school like? Um, yeah. What was scribal school like, Maggie? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us yeah, all. I, we got a I question I... from our one of our supporters asking us what school was like for kids. And yeah, yeah. So, I can say a little bit. But yeah, yeah. I, I wish that I could say more and i'll just quickly plug my own institution right now um isac at the university of chicago the institute for the study of ancient cultures formerly the oriental institute or the oi um, currently has a special exhibition up on scribal school in ancient babylonia and Mm -hmm. they have um like a very different kind of evidence for this Mm -hmm. that does allow them to reconstruct the day-to-day in more detail than we can do yeah. Um, and some of that's because they found a, a house that was definitely a school. So in mm-hmm. ancient Egypt, we have areas that are full of literary ostraca. And so we think, well, what else could it be other than a school? Mm-hmm. Um, but 
it's not quite as clear and, you know, debated. And so it seems like in ancient Egypt, you would have a few years of like elementary education first, where you would learn some basics. And then after that, if you're going to become a scribe or a priest or I don't know, you know, any other kind of like elite profession that requires extensive literacy, then you will go do an apprenticeship uh, with a master scribe. And that's the phase when people are going to start reading literary texts. So they're not beginners. Um, They already are able to do, they already have basic literacy. um, But maybe, you know, in the period I'm looking at um, in the New Kingdom, you know, maybe your basic literacy is in late Egyptian and now you're going to learn Middle Egyptian um, or you can read Middle Egyptian, but you're not very good at writing in Middle Egyptian hieratic yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is where you start to develop the like kinds of advanced skills that make you this kind of like ultra skilled Mm -hmm. scribe that they like to describe themselves as once they're done with school. I, I feel I haven't finished learning my my heretic skill skills yet. Never. <laughs> yeah, me neither. <laughs> it's never I, done. I just can't <laughs> can't quite get there. But you get used to right. one hand, and then you switch to another, and you're like, "Well, and now yeah. I no, I know nothing." <laughs> and it's funny for schools. I'm asked this question all the time too. Like, what was the school like, and how do they teach? With the assumption being that it's going to be this formal mm-hmm. um, system where you go to a place and you're taught by someone who's not your your own elders and it's that doesn't seem to be the evidence that we're finding that it's a much more informal um messy complicated um system that is in some places and sometimes like this and some places and sometimes like that we can't expect Egypt to be monolithic over 3000 years after all um but th- this one's um it's not going to be what you expect and there's going to be a lot more learning on the job than than you would you would find today. Which maybe again, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, Jordan. I was just gonna say maybe again that speaks to the father son idea because if there are, it's these uh, jobs are usually you know you follow your father in what job position he has. So again, it's literally father to son in probably a lot of cases, or uncle to nephew, or uncle to son, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, and I think this like father-son, you are inheriting your dad's job and you're learning on the job. I think, Kara, that is such a good way to put it because a lot of these scribal apprentices do seem to be doing their homework like on the side while they're working on a job. So we have copies of the teaching of Amenemhat from cemeteries that we know that they're copying like on their breaks or on the weekends or on like in the evenings while they are working on decorating these tombs. And we can see that happening in Daryl Medina too. We have um, dates on some of the exercises from Daryl Medina that allow, I think it's Andrea McDowell who reconstructed this and found um, that they're all doing their homework on the weekends because Mm -hmm. during the week they're camping away from the village in the Theban Hills and then they come back and they do their homework. And we have texts that talk about this phase of scribal training and say things like you bring your chapter daily give it to me I'll give you the next one so it definitely is not like what we picture the classroom environment although there do seem to be some places that were really like dedicated 
to schooling, like the K2 area of Daryl Medina, uh-huh. it seems like most people are doing this in a much more ad hoc kind of way. And and at Daryl Medina, since since you're since you're going there, I'll come too. Um, there's it, you find evidence of apprenticeship in the most unexpected places. For instance, the coffin of Sinajem has one side where the hieroglyphs are all beautiful and very nice and well-formed. And on the other side by the head are really shitty, crabby, not very nice hieroglyphs. And it looks like a, a, an apprenticeship of, of some kind that the person, the, probably the boy who doesn't know what he's doing compared to the master is following the best he can. Is this a case of a, of a son or a grandson finishing a coffin? How is this perceived as being appropriate? You don't see that on the coffin set of Kansu in the Met, for instance. There, it seems to be much more important to put your, your reputational skills forward on your coffin rather than allowing something as sweet as, a, as an apprentice hand into your actual coffin on the outside where people can see it. Um, it's, it's super surprising that, that you might find um, situations like that. Yes, it is possible that this isn't a master apprentice, that it's just a shitty hand or somebody rushed or somebody's trying to do it really quickly in a, in a cramped space. This is all possible, but it looks um, like two different hands and one of them much less skilled than the other. Mm. Wow, it's really fascinating. I didn't know about that example and I'm going to look it up later. It, it's reminding me that I, I think it's Senegem who, and, and maybe you will know this, Kara, who had um, a limestone like writing board and, you know, not quite an ostracon, um, like a, a bigger, more horizontal board mm-hmm. with a copy of, I think, Sinaway on it that is in a beautiful calligraphic hand, but full of mistakes, almost like it's like a memento of his own education. I, I think it is an edgem. It might be someone else. But is it at the British Museum? Is it the one at the British Museum? I don't know. Probably. Okay. I just found, I just Googled it too. Found in Sinejim's tomb, I think. Um, but then, uh, and what are they dating it to? Um, 1920, they're giving it a very broad date. But yeah, I don't see anything about... Own. Well, because this tomb, and Andreas Doran has found an ostracon that speaks to this, this, that this burial chamber was opened and that things like Pyramidia were stored inside. And this was a place where there was much toing and froing. It wasn't a sealed place. You know, that's, that's part of what happens when a tomb moves to a sloping passage rather than a shaft. And, and so I think it's found in Theban tomb one. I think, I think. Um, but now I'm not seeing that on the, I, I, we'll have to look this up. Yeah, we we'll, can look we'll into it more. more. We'll, we'll get know, more, more information. I know exactly where here. I read about this and the book is in my office, so I can't okay. well, find it It's okay. Right we now, can, but... we can follow okay. up. We can follow up, but, um. Yeah. It's just interesting to think about all these layers yeah. of apprentice, yeah. apprentice involvement, with, even within a single tomb, whether it's an Edgem's own writing board or an apprentice using the space later on to mm-hmm. copy his own homework, that we find their presence everywhere, even when you wouldn't necessarily expect it because it's not a classroom. Right. Which is, I think that was honestly what, when reading your article, this was what fascinated me the most, was both your 
your approach to these texts using, I think, as you term it, material philology, which is, and I think for Kara and I, being both material culture people, I this is how I always like to view everything, right? Where the texts are viewed as material objects and you look into the context, how they were used in social, you know, social, historical, cultural contexts and all that kind of stuff. And not just what's what it says, but um, looking at, you know, where it was written, by who, when was it written, how it changes over time, how it reflects the larger social, political, historical context. Um, to me, it's really obvious why you would choose such an approach. But did you feel that that was lacking within Egyptological literature previously, um, that mainly people were just focusing on the philology and ignoring Ob the, the objectness of it. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> I think this particular approach of of looking at manuscript not just as the thing that the text, our main object of interest, happens to be on, but also part of the object and something of interest in itself. I think that has become, um, or is a is almost now basically the default mode of, Egypt, of a philology and Egyptology. This has really become accepted in the field. Um, but a couple of decades ago, or even 10 years ago, when Frederick Hagen published his study of the teaching of Tahotep, um, that I think really pushed it forward. And so I think it's really in the last 10 years that it has has become this accepted but yeah the, the basic idea is um if you think of a text edition in your head think of like a book of mm -hmm. like all the copies of any text that's going to be just a book of hieroglyphic transcriptions there's going to be like no mention of the object uh of you know how big the manuscript is maybe not even what the manuscript is made out of or where it's from mm -hmm. um and we need those editions too, but that can't be the end of the story. We can't only think about texts as things that exist independent of their objects, uh -huh. um, as as what I think some people would call a virtual text. And when we do um, translations or text editions, we need to keep in mind that these texts change over time because they are manuscript cultures. So material philology is is about not just looking for like an imagined original version of the text that was then later corrupted, but about looking at how texts move through time as texts and as things on objects with social contexts. I think this is because if you go look up a translation, right, you get like one translation of the teaching of Amenhat. If you look at like look time or something, for example, but and that ignores the fact that we have multiple iterations, many, many iterations of it. and um looking at the philology of it too that you know it changes they put in late egyptian isms into it how you know even just the minor change of a conjunction or a preposition or something like this that seems so trivial actually can very much change the meaning as as you discuss in the article and so how how do you see this text changing over time the purpose of the text how it's used um like, obviously, we have a bunch of students copying it down it over time. And so you're seeing um, the change from their perspective. Yeah, great question. And the question is basically my whole 
the whole article. <laughs> oh, okay. Because <laughs> it's a really big question. Yes. Um, that I'm happy to talk about. <laughs> she can talk about this all too week. Big. Oh, yes. I could <laughs> talk about it for hours and hours. So I'll I'll start just maybe by defending Look Times translation just for a yes. second because we always defend. It's so hot. It's funny how good she actually was and how she really did check so many. She she was um she was pretty damn good. But anyway, you go ahead and defend. Yeah, no, her translations are good, and uh, I often still prefer them, yeah. even though there have been many iterations, many new translations. I think, yeah, I think her translations are good. And she, I think, does have a pretty good handle on, like, the manuscript tradition mm, when she's mm-hmm. choosing how to make what what is still a co- composite translation. Yeah. And material philology is very much like we don't do composite translations. Mm-hmm. In the case of the teaching of Amenemhat, we basically have to because we only have two complete copies of the poem, okay. one of which is no longer complete. The last half or half of the last page is gone. And the actual papyrus is gone. We only have a facsimile of the papyrus. What happened to it? Nobody knows. Um, Can you give us the background of how it, how was it found? How it came out of Egypt? Nope. So what museum was it in? It wasn't. It belonged to the English numismatist James Millingen. (laughs) And in the 1840s, it was um, examined and then um, like copied by a hand with like watercolor by um, somebody who seems to have been Amadeo Peyron, an Italian coptologist. It was in private hands. And then either when Millingen died or when I, I can't remember now if Millingen bequeathed his collection to the British Museum, or if he gave it to the next person who then bequeathed their collection to the British Museum, when it was bequeathed to the museum, the papyrus was no longer in the collection, mm. and we don't know what happened to it. And we lost the facsimile for like 50 years, too. Oh, wow. Where did that but then go? Somebody, well, somebody left it tucked into a, a book in the library of the Collège de France. They were, they were comparing it with the other complete copy that we have of the teaching of Amenemhat. It was tucked in the like, you know, select hieratic papyri from the British Museum. Oh <laughs> so we have this facsimile um, that was once a papyrus with a complete poem, is now most of the poem. And then we have this other papyrus, Papyrus Salier II, mm-hmm. which does have the complete poem and a couple of other poems in the full papyrus role. But this is the copy that has a lot of, um, yeah, what Egyptologists would often call corruptions, uh-huh. a word that I don't really like to use. But the fact is, it has a lot of mistakes. It has a lot of things that don't seem to make a lot of sense. And a lot of late Egyptian writing conventions, mm-hmm. yeah. like spellings and like superfluous prepositions that start to creep in but don't seem to mean anything, but sometimes they do. Some of them seem to be hypercorrection. So it's not necessarily the best choice to use as the basis for like the one translation that you'll include in an anthology of Egyptian literature or that Mm -hmm. you'll assign to your students. So this was a very long way of saying, I think composite translations in this case are necessary and okay, 
But I think it's important for the translator to understand why it's necessary to do that composite translation and, you know, why you're going to choose from this manuscript for this line and this one for this line. So you just have to have a handle on the, the textual transmission, which I think Lifttime does. And just to give our listeners an idea, if you're not an Egyptologist, the way you'll often see this in an edited um, trans in, in an edited volume that is publishing these these different um, texts, you'll get like a line by line comparison. So you'll have like um, papyrus allier would be like p dot s, and then you would have how this this line works in in hieroglyphs in a, in a transcription, and then you would put in um, the papyrus. What is it? Milliner? M- Millen? I see. I don't. Millingen. Oh, Millingen. Millingen. And so then you would put p dot dot m, and you would compare it, and you would go through the whole text like this. If you have a third, if you have an ostracon or something that has these sections, then you would put that in, and you would then make a comparison between all three versions, and and try to understand which is the oldest, because Egyptologists are always looking for the source, the kvela, the origin, right? And and that's the purest and the truest. Um, and in the Egyptological mind, at least, and you're trying to to figure out the meaning using the comparisons of those three or four or five strands of the of the text. It can get very complicated with the more popular text or a text for which there are more copies. And uh, yeah, so that that's the way these books are. And so you might open a book and you might see like, you know, all these different lines of the same text, same text, and you're like, I don't, or same sentence from the same text. You're like, I don't understand what's going on. They're different versions, sometimes from different time periods of the same uh, story, instruction, whatever it is. Yeah. And that's exactly what we have for this text for the teaching of Amenemhat, um, of which we have over 250 surviving copies, but most of those are very short excerpts. So for any one line of the poem, you might have a, a range from five to 30 uh, versions to compare. And mm-hmm. as I said, before we really do need those editions, you know, I I use that edition of the teaching of Amenemhat as the basis for my own study of how the text changed over time. So, um, not necessarily materially focused, but still absolutely necessary. We have these numerous versions of this text across through the New Kingdom. Um, can you give a couple examples of how we see it changing from the 18th dynasty to the Ramazid period? And then any, any surmise on why and how this connects to any, you know, larger sociopolitical changes? Yeah, um, I would be happy to. So I should maybe start by giving a little background on what the text actually talks yes. about, because somehow I haven't done that yet. <laughs> So uh, other than my saying it's a, a king and Jordan, I think you said it was a dead king. Oh, sorry. Yes, um, I gave, I spoiled it. <laughs> well, I don't know well, how that's much of a spoiler. <laughs> we will but, provide yeah. um, a translation on the Substack page. So, so listeners can read through a translation of the oh, text perfect. as well so they can have a little background in the text. Great, great. That will help a lot. No, so it's one of the most dramatic texts out there. I mean, and it, it's such a good to, one. It's really good. And it, it, if everything is hyperformal in a royal text, this one uh, lets you behind the veil a little bit more than, than other texts. So, yeah. 
Yeah. So it opens with the king, Amenemhat, who is speaking to his son, Senwazirat, telling him, listen to my advice um, so that you can do a good job being king. And my advice is don't trust anyone. It doesn't matter how generous you are to them, how much you care about them, how much you think you are friends or even brothers. Don't trust them because the second you really need their support, they will abandon you. And here's what's happened to me. Mm-hmm. All of the people to whom I was most generous turned on me. It was after dinner one night. I was drowsing in bed and I fell asleep and suddenly I woke up and found that my bodyguards were attacking me and I couldn't get to my weapons in time. And he does not ever explicitly say what happened in the attack where we're left to fill in that gap ourselves. Um, and, and we have we no do body not agree. Yeah, what, right. What happened? And we have no body like Ramses the third. We have and recently discovered say, cut throat. Reminds me so right? much of yeah, Ramses. Right. Yeah. So then then Amenemhat explains that this attack happened before he had officially appointed Senwazirat as his heir. Um, something that seems to be counter to the historical record, but maybe that's just, I don't want to get sidetracked into that, the historicity yeah. of the text. Though that is another. You don't want to go I'm down the to pick. co-regency. <laughs> Why don't you want to go down the co-regency rabbit hole? I don't understand. It's so much fun. And nobody has any strong feelings about it anyway. I mean, who doesn't love a good co-regency, which is all royal propaganda, but who doesn't love one? It's it's wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I'm happy to go down the Amenemhat historicity rabbit hole. Maybe not the general co-regency rabbit hole. I mean, let me just say, for those who don't know what the hell a co-regency is, a co-regency is when they tell us, the historians of the ancient world tell us that two kings ruled side by side simultaneously and that the elder king named the younger king to rule alongside him. And sometimes you see cartouches together or other things like this. Right. But... Because we found some of these co-regencies, Egyptologists have gone co-regency happy. And and because cartouches occur together, they're like, oh, it's definitely a co-regency. And then we get these arguments about chronology in which Egyptologists say there was an 11-year co-regency, there was a three-year co-regency, there was a, you know, and it changes the chronology and the the length of reign of particular Uh kings because there is overlap, which changes the way the history works. And it changes how we perceive a young Sinwasrit the first, because is he trying to carve out his own soul kingship after a co-regency, or is he actually not yet been named king alongside his father, and he's got to fight for it amongst multiple brothers? And it changes the story considerably. And there's there's all kinds of fighting about what a co-regency even is. If co-regencies actually existed um, or if co-regencies are propagandistic fiction, and I use the word propagandistic not to, propagandistic not to be like, um, oh, they're not telling us any actual truths. I'm just using that word as something that that is ideologizing and putting the king in the best light, um, that there is more support there than just a solo operator, that there's, there's uh, multitudes, if you like. So with that um, complication thrown in of what a co-regency is, is um, yeah, you can you can jump into Sinwasrat not having been named king when he finds out that dad has been attacked. Yeah, there is a question of whether there was a co. A ten, I think the 
received wisdom is, or like the prevailing theory, I should say, not received wisdom because it's very much unsettled, but the prevailing theory among people who think there was a co-regency was that Senwazret and his dad, Amenemhat, ruled as co-kings for 10 years. Mm -hmm. So if that happened, this wouldn't make sense. Although I think that this text uh, is like, totally separate from the question of what really happened in the 12th dynasty. And I think we really need to totally bifurcate these issues um, and, and not try to see the teaching of Amenemhat as reflective of any historical reality, especially because uh, of the question of the poems dating. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, the, we assumed for a really long time that it was written right after the death of the real Amenemhat I, who is a real king, who did really rule in the start of the 12th dynasty. Um, more recently, there's been some linguistic studies of the text, and Andreas Stauder has said, actually, it seems like it was probably a couple hundred years later that it was written. He can't date it super precisely, but it seems to be from sometime between the late 13th to even the very early 18th. And our, our earliest manuscripts are very early 18th. So it's clearly circulating by that point, mm-hmm. but we don't have any manuscripts older than that. These texts get backdated, right? Because they're written yes. good Middle Egyptian and they're talking about events that happen in the Middle Kingdom. And so people like to assume that they're from the Middle Kingdom or sometimes even older, right? Yeah. Um, but most of our actual copies come from the New Kingdom. So if we're looking at Good, solid evidence. Yeah, if these yeah. are written a lot later. And, and actually, all but one, possibly two, of the copies of Amenemhat are from the New Kingdom. So it, it is still being read a little bit later than that, but it really is like an, a New Kingdom phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, as you can tell, I tend to find Stouter's arguments convincing. Not everybody does. It has not been universally accepted, I will say. But it does seem to be more accepted than not um for my work i think it's sort of a red herring when was it written because i don't really care about the author of the poem and why they wrote it i really care about these new kingdom readers that are attested in the surviving manuscripts um but it does it does make one ask what is history state history royal history who is it for why are they writing it down hundreds of years after the fact and whom does it serve and it's these are all really interesting questions that you you're talking about a history that happened at the beginning of the 12th dynasty um like what what like 1950 bce or something like that um and and written down in like you know 13th century so the the passage of time is pretty extraordinary certainly for simple americans with our quarter century country <laughs> or quarter millennium country, right? 250 years. Um, to, to have that length of, sti- that, of time is pretty extraordinary, but that doesn't mean necessarily that there's no history to it, right? Um, no, they definitely think it's old and like that it's old and like that it's about these historical figures. So I think the question of when was it really written is something that really only interests us today. I don't think the ancient Egyptians were asking this. I think that they saw it as a middle kingdom as a 12th dynasty text whether it really was or not and so one of the points you you bring up 
when looking at how the text has, is received or written down across the New Kingdom is that the context about the assassination becomes even less clear, right? It becomes more obscured with the language used. And do you think this is just, is this a reflection of, I just automatically popped, you know, like Ramses Third and the trials and tribulations of, of, um, like we just recorded a podcast on labor relations and the strikes and people like from Dio Medina being really unhappy and seeing things going downhill and sea people invasions and late Bronze Age things. Do you think this is a reflection of of that? There, they have less. There's a distancing between them and the king. Um, why do you see this obscuring? Or they just want the like emotional, like it's it's sexier when there's a mystery. Interesting. I hadn't thought of this like broad decline kind of context, though I have to wonder to what extent it felt like that to like a random scribe living in Asyut where people are visiting this tomb to write literary excerpts on the walls and like, Uh you know, participate in the scribal community. And I have argued basically the latter (laughs) that I think that and this is this was a very gentle way of steering me back to the question of how the text changes over time. So in the early versions of the text, in the 18th dynasty versions, he says, Amenemhat says very clearly, look, the attack happened before the court had heard, I would hand over to you. Um, and it uses a specific verb form mm-hmm. that implies be like very clearly, that means before the court had heard. Mm-hmm. That verb form disappears after the 18th dynasty in these texts. It did continue to exist in late Egyptian, but it looked really different from the 18th or from the, sorry, Middle Egyptian form. So I think that what's driving the change is actually just linguistic change. I think that they aren't recognizing the verb form anymore. And because they look at this on the page and they don't recognize it, they make other changes in their Mm. own copy to try to make sense of this. And so this linguistic change gets bound up in like changing tastes and preferences and and becomes kind of like a feedback loop. So Uh this before the court had heard starts to become things like, I mean, some of them are just the attack happened and the court hadn't heard. Uh Some of them are more like the attack happened uh and I had not heard the heard the court, I would bequeath to me. Like some of uh, them yeah. That's become, really wonky. Yeah, really wonky. Let's, uh-huh. let's go with wonky. That's a much more charitable <laughs> description well, than I was going to use. As you're, as you're talking, I'm just thinking for our listeners, like for a Ramazid person speaking late Egyptian, how different would Middle Egyptian be to those scribes? Is it like us to like Shakespearean English? Because then I think that makes a lot more sense of being like, oh, we don't use like, wither and tither anymore i'm going to change it to like something that we use now i'm going to make it more i'm going to update it to or a word that you don't even recognize as part of your language anymore because so much time has the language has evolved so much i think that's a pretty apt comparison because if you think about reading shakespeare now there's different vocabulary Mm -hmm. but not everything is different yeah you can still read it english but it's like a lot of the things are weird and you need practice to yes. be able to read mm-hmm. it. And like when yeah. you first start reading it, you get the notes and the folder editions yep. and then, you, you know, need all you the glossing. To, 
Yeah. So yeah. I think that's a pretty good comparison. Okay. So, you know, they see something like, I don't know, sayeth, you know, this archaic verb form. They don't know what it means, so they change it. But but the result is that when you look at, if you read the copies that they actually wrote, it's just not really clear mm -hmm. what the relationship is anymore between the attack and this issue of the succession. And so I have interpreted this as part of a broader shift with some other textual changes that I think shows that their interests are changing. They're less interested in this political intrigue, maybe in this political history mm. element. You know, it's not gone, but it's maybe not their main focus anymore because they are interested in um, like this emotional experience of reading the poem in the drama. They are interested in this like affective and aesthetic experience. Other changes they make are things like um, they'll um, add things to make consecutive lines have parallel structures ah, okay. that weren't so there. So more poetic. Before. Yeah. Yeah. So there's clearly some like concern for style. They mm -hmm. start adding um, pronouns sometimes. And this is this this particular issue is a little hairy because um, some of this might be just Ramesside writing conventions and it's really hard to tell when mm -hmm. to interpret something as a meaningful addition or just like you know an extra like loop on the end of the word that you're writing in cursive or something but it seems like they're adding things to make it like not just the attack happened or like the wound happened but my wound happened mm. and Senwazret my son listened to me instead of just Senwazret listened to me so I think that they are not only interested in this as political history. It's more um, theatrical. I think they're definitely interested in, in this as like dramatic um, mm. and fun and immersive. Um, I think they're a also little, interested a little in the, Lear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very Hamlet in some ways. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, I, so I think that they are still interested in, in the political history and especially if you're living, you know, in the capital around the time of the assassination of Ramses III, maybe you start to think like, oh, Amin Emhat is hitting a little differently now that I'm uh -huh. watching this happen in real life. It's not that it's gone, but I think that, I think we can sometimes have like blinders on with uh -huh. this text because we are most interested in the political elements, in the intrigue, in the question of co-regency and um, insecure succession. But I think that that isn't the whole story. That it's a question of archetypes of fathers and sons and mm -hmm. succession and passing on to rule. And, and then, so maybe an analogy of like a Henry II play by Shakespeare, hundreds of years removed from the history at hand, and that's really not the point. And would you use the play, Shakespeare's play, to write a history, a narrative history, well, at your peril, you would. There, it's not that there's no historicity in there. And it, it does have its own sources. And yes, they're closer to it than we are, but it's not written for that purpose. So they have a different agenda. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's it's the such argument a good here. analogy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's yeah. a good analogy because people also will turn to some of those history plays mm -hmm. to say, things that they think are factual about mm -hmm. yep. these old kings or so. how a king like was in his like person 
right? Yeah. Like how Shakespeare's Richard portrayal, exactly. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Like we base yeah. it off Shakespeare, yeah, or like Cleopatra, right? Like all these negative opinions about Cleopatra. It's like Shakespeare did a number on her. So I read that for I, the first time this past semester really, in, in a class on the reception of ancient Egypt, mm-hmm. and it, it is really cool. She is like a really slippery mm-hmm. character. It's really hard to pin her down. So just a uh, a tip if you have an opportunity to revisit that one it's worth it it's it's really fun but it, it also means that time and the passage of time and looking for that or text is not necessarily the thing that's going to get you the best historicity you have to look at text type so if you looked at plutarch and how he's writing about cleopatra versus mm-hmm. how she's in an arabic text compared yeah. to zenobia you might get more accuracy in the later Arabic texts than you would in the Greek closer to her time, because one is a is a text serving Octavian's political agenda and the mm-hmm. other is not. So, yeah. So so in some ways, it doesn't matter when the thing was written down. It's why it, why it exists and what it's for and how it was a part of people's uh, uh, media entertainment <laughs> well, in, in a way or educational enculturation or what, whatever we, we do with all of these archetypes and stories and narratives and mythologies and, you know, read your Joseph Campbell, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think one of the coolest things in, in this article was the reception of the text by much later kings, like King Taharqa, and how you find little snippets of the text at his temple at Akawa, correct? I think it's Akawa. And, yep, and that beautiful phrase of like doing the dog walk which is <laughs> crazy how do you see this working do you think Taharka did this on purpose or that yeah just that the dog walk phrase was you know a, a beautiful metaphor of talking about your enemies and just for some context Taharka yes. is what, the what date that seventh century uh, right? 25th dynasty yes. so 744 century. to 656 I can see okay, it in the so, article great um, so, you know, another could throw in another 500 years on top, yes. on and, top and, of it. And um, from Nubian rulers now, too. So mm-hmm. this is a, a further step removed, perhaps, from the, the West Theban scribes who were writing all this down. And the archetypes so is, work. The archetypes work. They're, they're attractive. Yeah, go ahead, Maggie. This is like one of the coolest things I found mm-hmm. in the course of this project was Taharko quoting from Amenemhat in his temple, which is in Nubia. He's not, it's not Mm -hmm. a a temple he's building in Egypt. It's in Nubia. Um, Yeah, I think he quoted it on purpose. I I think that this dynasty is uh, really interested in old, older Egyptian culture. And he's not even the first one in the dynasty to quote from Middle Egyptian Mm -hmm. poetry. Um, Pia or Pianki um, quotes from I don't know, four or five Middle wow. Egyptian poems in his great triumphal stila, including the teaching of Amenemhat. Yeah. Uh, and then Taharko in this new temple, Akawa, sticks this line uh, th- at least three times, probably originally four, and the fourth one hasn't survived, but multiple times on the walls of his temple, um, you know, alongside these victory scenes, like picture Taharko. Um, smiting enemies uh-huh. and also as a sphinx trampling enemies and alongside those he says that like he has driven out libyans he has suppressed 
rebellious foreign land, he makes them do the dog walk, which uh, is to me very clearly drawing from the teaching of Amenemhat when he says, um, like, I suppressed Nubians, I brought Medjai, I made the Levantines do the dog walk. Uh-huh. Um, this is not a stock phrase. We don't find this anywhere else <laughs> except in the teaching of Amenemhat. We, f- we do find occasionally um, other texts comparing enemies to dogs and sometimes mm-hmm. involving like walking, dog walking. But in this exact formulation, it's really only in the teaching of Amenemhat. The mm-hmm. next closest thing is something about um, Mernepta in Estila at Amada, also in Nubia. So mm-hmm. it's definitely possible that Taharko was also aware of this mm-hmm. um, monument in which he says he made um, the enemies from Hati come on their knees like dogs walk. Mm-hmm. So, why so do you not think... exactly, but... Yeah, so why do you think he chose this text? Besides Kushite rulers were really into archaizing, even back to the Old Kingdom, we know that from their art and other things. But to me, it's just really fascinating that these instruction, these pieces of instruction literature spoke enough to him and um, obviously Pia as well that they were like we're going to quote directly from them to reference our our own conquest and leadership and rulership so I think that some of it is because they like them mm-hmm. and they like um, like participating in this very old tradition um, and some of it is like wow what an evocative image of victory <laughs> like if you want to have this bombastic victory scene, what better way to describe it other than making them do the dog walk? But I, I think the biggest reason, um, and this is, you know, kind of like speculative, although I, I think there is some evidence for it. I think the clue is um, on another document, mm-hmm. uh, another monument in the temple. Um, that seems to suggest that he's picking the teaching of Amenemhat because it like matches his dynasty's foundational myth. Uh-huh. So on another stela in the in the forecourt um, that was put up actually like right next to or right in front of one of these quotations um, that Taharko had erected there. Uh-huh. Um, it describes the foundation of his dynasty as happening through a covenant between his ancestor Alara and the god Amun. Mm-hmm. And Alara thanks Amun for putting a stop to a rebellion that happened while he was king, and that you know implies that he was able to found this dynasty in part because he survived this rebellion. So I think that Taharko then sees this poem um, about an assassination, mm-hmm. like a rebellion, um, a conspiracy, and sees that as matching his dynasty's myth. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, suggests that for Taharko, Amenemhat is not dead when he's speaking ah. to Sinwazirat. I think for Taharko, this is a failed assassination attempt. And this is where this, oh, wow. this ambiguity in the text is really important. It's possible that Egyptian readers in the New Kingdom were already reading it that way. Mm-hmm. As, as I said, the text isn't explicit about it, and Egyptologists mm-hmm. can't agree today. 
whether they're whether Amin Amhad is alive or dead. To me, yeah. it, it, it's pretty hard for me to see it as him being alive. Like maybe I guess he's mortally wounded on his deathbed. Yeah, or and something. like, uh, yeah, my son. Yeah, yeah. But it's hard for me to read it as him coming back from this. But Taharko seems to be reading it that way, and so it seems to have been a viable reading for ancient readers. So we have to consider it too. Uh huh. I I love the idea that we have literature that's at this point ancient but is part of an elite enculturation that is important to display that you know and understand or that you're a part of mm-hmm. and while you were talking maggie about the dog walk i looked up because i wanted to keep my analogy going i looked up expressions of shakespeare that we don't think are expressions of shakespeare oh yeah and and so and we all know this right but like the i come full circle is is Shakespeare. Eating me out of house and home is Shakespeare. To have elbow room is Shakespeare. Well, he's an, he invented so many words too. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, give the devil his due. Now, if we didn't have uh, the printing press and, and a more um, uh, materialist understanding of text and authorship, if we hadn't invented copyright and, and other things like this, then these these words and expressions wouldn't necessarily be associated with Shakespeare himself, uh-huh. but would be associated with this time of a mythological beginning, a time of some kind of purity when when men fought like men or wh- whatever we think we're going to be able to do when we go back to the past and make something great again. And and this idea of looking back to a text associating oneself with these Theban kings from hundreds of miles further to the south, like Pianchi and, and Taharka do, and, and really connecting with this mythology, whether it's correctly and completely understood or not, is the same way that we would use um, the Odyssey, the Iliad, mm-hmm. um, in, and, and use expressions from it in English translation in our American world, in German translation in another world, but knowing those texts and knowing those quotations puts you into a certain cultural space of of elite leadership. And it's it's so very interesting to me to see uh, the results of uh, arguably an Egyptian occupation of of these Nubian lands and then the elites left behind who are looking to um to the the elite Egyptian texts in the same way a Briton who suffered Roman occupation teaches his son's Latin almost to this very day at at places like Eton, right? Mm-hmm. You don't see it as problematic. You see it as putting yourself into the 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 where you need to be as an elite. You need to know Latin. Why? You don't say, oh, because we were taken over a thousand years ago. 2000 years ago you're not going to say that and we have to have this language but there is there are a lot of these streams in in what it is that you're talking about which i find very very interesting it's super interesting in in kawa because you think like well who is coming to this temple so say like who's the audience that he's trying to impress or yeah yeah i I don't know i i don't know because the location of them in the temple they're in the forecourt and like the first courtyard which was open to the public Uh yeah yeah, but the people of Kawa aren't literate mostly, mm-hmm. and don't speak Egyptian, and they're yeah. in Egyptian. So, like on festival days, probably priests would read from the stele and maybe from the walls, but in translation, 
So you're like so many steps removed from the original poem. I kind of suspect that almost nobody would have recognized it and that that wasn't really the point. I mean, you think also about the scenes next to these quotations, which are, as Jordan, you mentioned earlier, old kingdom scenes. They're mm-hmm. modeled after temple, mortuary temple scenes from the Memphite area from mm-hmm. the fifth dynasty. Nobody coming to the temple knows that. So it seems like it's about more than demonstrating this to your own subjects. You know, I mean, we always say, well, it's for a divine audience, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I always find that to be a little bit easy. I, I don't know the answer, but I think it's bigger than just I, I hate the divine, the divine audience. O- divine audience cut such a cop out. <laughs> I agree. It's a cop out. I think some of it is also like for himself. But yeah, but yeah. certainly the, the priests of the temple who are probably authoring these inscriptions mm-hmm. with him and his own successors, they probably would have recognized these quotations and chose, helped him choose them. But that's mm-hmm. such a small audience. Quickly want to touch on one of the bits I particularly like, and I, Kara and I both enjoy these bits, but like of speculative history, or I think as you term it, phenomenological history, where you imagine the circumstances behind the writing of these texts, of feelings or rationale of the author. Um, I think in the article, you, you talk about the one scribe, like writing next to the pyramid of Amenemhat while they're like, taking stone from it but he's copying a text about you know the middle kingdom kings um and then dropping the ostracon there and kara puts this into her own um your more popular books for for example you know hatsapshut the woman who would be king you do some speculative history as well and so i guess this question can be both to you but why do you think it's important to include these more personal speculations about feelings and things like this that you have no proof for, um, that you can't back up, really, um, that people might bang you on, right? You, you can't know this. You're being universalist or whatever they always say. Um, why do you think it's important? Because I really like speculative history. I think it's a really great way of working with materials that maybe are, are incomplete, as long as you acknowledge that you're using speculative history or phenomenological history as you term it, like why do you think it's important to incorporate? It's, I'm, it's funny to me that you picked up on this as well, because when I presented this project in um, like an interdisciplinary humanities seminar last year, everyone was like, oh my God, the speculative readings here. There's, and I was like, wow, that was like one paragraph in the whole Article. Well, you know, like Cydia Hartman has become super popular. I know with it. Yes, like that's what English. they said. <laughs> yes. So, OK. So it's like very popular. I know a bunch of grad students who are working with her work, um, you know, speculative history and archives. And so I think it's a very hot within yeah. more more literary circles um, where I've heard about it. And I just I love it. I love Cydia Hartman's work. And um, I think it's great for ancient context where we also like archives where it's going to be incomplete and we have to make some speculation and why not lean into it a little bit sometimes? Yeah, so I don't think I'm doing quite the same thing that she is. And so that was sort of why I I think I took out the word speculative or I didn't use it as often and switched uh-huh. to phenomenological. Although my husband, who has a PhD in philosophy, um, hates that I use that word <laughs> because... 
<laughs> like literary studies does not use phenomenology the same way that philosophy does. But mm. I, I think it sort of gets at this question of why we read literature at all and why we read ancient Egyptian literature. And I think that a lot of Egyptologists would say, and myself included, would say that we read it because that feels like a way to feel a true connection to these people across the millennia, across mm -hmm. this like cultural, linguistic, um, contextual gulf, mm -hmm. that there is something recognizable to us in this literature. And so if, if that's why we're doing it, then why wouldn't we try to imagine the personal feelings of the ancient readers when we're interested in our own personal feelings about it. Mm -hmm. And you're right that we can never know. And I have gotten pushback on this um, sometimes um, pretty strongly. So, so has Kara. <laughs> at conferences, yeah. Um, but if, if we only confine our work to the things that we can answer definitively, then we just wouldn't do any Egyptology. We can never know anything definitively. So yeah, as you said, let's just acknowledge that we can't know. So I, I think in the couple of cases where I really do this, um, which are a scribal apprentice who is reading it in the cemetery of Sheikh Abd al Gurna while he's building a tomb mm -hmm. and he's surrounded by tombs, but also by construction workers building tombs and, and, you know, these like material and economic processes of memorializing. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that is a relevant context that probably would have played some role in how he's thinking about this poem. And then the other one that you mentioned is, is someone who is reading this poem about the real life Sinwazir I at the pyramid of yep. Sinwazir I, which is in ruins. And he's there probably to quarry stone away from it and ruin it even further. Mm -hmm. And we know from other texts that they do think about monuments crumbling and their relationship to lasting memory of mm -hmm. people and we know that they see um writing specific specifically wisdom instructions as a way to make yourself remembered and so that how could you not mm -hmm. think about how that would affect how he's reading the poem if what you're interested in is how are readers experiencing this poem which is what i'm interested in um so it's certainly speculative but it feels like it would be an incomplete study if I bumped up against these questions and didn't attempt to answer them at all. I love that. I think it's great. I think that, that when one writes speculative history or when one tries to go to a more emotional human core of what the human past is, one is admitting that there is no pure history. There's no way of telling a story of what actually happened. None of us will know. There's nothing, there's no time machine. We can't prove anything. And those who say that taking emotion out of things or humanity out of things or, or just saying, you know, just present the facts as they are, are admitting that they're apologists for the history as it was told. And if you are trying to get at some kind of truth that may be not as, and I will use this word purposefully, slavish to the narrative as it is presented, then, then one has to engage in some hypothetical storytelling. 
with being very open that you're doing so, it is one of the most responsibly subversive things I think that one can do. And it is also one of the most de-fetishizing practices that we can, can embark on as scholars of history, social history, literature, to, to try to take a people, ancient Egyptian people in this case, who have been fetishized into this priestly, death-obsessed, um, unemotional, masculine, smiting, um, uh, mag- I said magical twice. I mean, there's a reason. But this, this kind of haunted people we we put them in our these boxes at our peril and mm-hmm. we remove them from ourselves and we make them so um othered othered that's a good word and um and this kind of insertion of emotionality yet is it responsible well is it responsible to leave it out is what i would ask and what is responsible history writing or literature analysis um i think it's in yeah, many responsible ways to what into whom and to what power source. And given that power systems, those in power, are generally trying to veil their power, um, emotionality is one of the things that can reveal it. And and that's why I think it needs to be suppressed so much. And and why patriarchies, you know, for the last, what, five, six thousand years, they value rage and stoicism and suppress or feminize make womanly other other emotional um aspects or and even the speculative history which is associated more with women than men not completely and i don't want to make that like the way it is in the in the field but um i i really do think it's 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 something that is going to happen whether the boomers want it to or not (laughs) Yeah, I think it's part of this bigger paradigm shift as we're moving away from like enlightenment modes of thinking and positivism. I think this is just kind of a natural consequence. Jordan, I think you're right that it it can run the risk of being universalizing if you approach it as like, well, this is how it makes me feel. Mm -hmm. So that must be how it made them feel too. Absolutely. Like there's no way for me to step outside myself and, you know, my own expectations of this poem and my own interpretations of it. So I am only able to imagine some possible readings for these ancient readers, but I think that it's still worth doing as long as you acknowledge that. And flag it and mark it yeah. and give other options. And say, this is, but I, this is but what I, I'm doing. I found it yeah. like yeah. that picture of the scribe reading next to Sawazu the first pyramid it was so evocative. Like I pictured it instantly and it was like, oh, that's like so cool. Think about or you know, how these pieces get dropped and found along the way. And I think it's, you know, with the literature being one of the purest ways of having an emic perspective. Um, I, yeah, I, I, and I think as a reader, I know this is, you know, purely speculative, hypothetical, um, but it's still a fun thought exercise to go through thinking about how these pieces were used and written or consumed and, um, I think it also makes the ancient ancient studies more accessible to non-specialists. Um, I think that's one of the major ways of connecting with a broader audience is some of the speculative history and storytelling. And so to me, it reads very like ivory tower when people push against it, um, because I think it's something that having cool, interesting stories and constructing those stories using historical facts or artifacts or whatever is one of these ways we can 
bring the ancient world to everyone, um, especially with texts where you have to know how to read hieratic, which, you know, very few people know how to do. So I think, yeah, I'm all about it. So I, I, I really appreciated it. And I'm I think that's, that. that's very validating. I think this is a wonderful place to finish up our discussion, but I will end with uh, Maggie, what are you working on right now? If you feel comfortable sharing with the audience, are you starting a new project? Um, finishing up the book? I'm finishing up the book, which is a revision of my dissertation. So right. um, it I'm has sure that been... feels good. <laughs> yes and no. Some Sometimes I'm, long... like, <laughs> I'm like a little bit horrified that like, oh my God, why did I write this sentence this way? Or like, why did I organize this section this way? Um, oh. And like going back to revise has opened some new windows into the okay. text for me, which I wasn't really expecting. I kind of thought I was like done with new ideas about Amenemhat, but it turns out I wasn't. So that's Yeah, fun. but that's, that's why you got to get it done too. And it, you know, it's funny when you publish something, then it goes off and has its own life. It goes mm -hmm. off and... and it can meet a sad end or it can, it can create uh, other children that you then write next or other people write. Um, but mm -hmm. it's it's something you have to put out there and set free. So set it free, Maggie. <laughs> I, can, I can only hope that people will still be reading and printing yes. it in 700 more years or more. Can we imagine? <laughs> my God. My yeah. God. There we go. Well, I just want to thank you again for for hopping on the podcast. I had a this was really great and I super I hope, fun. Hope our listeners enjoy this. We'll throw up uh, Maggie's information up on the Substack post along with the article that I was referencing and any of the other things that we referenced during this podcast. And I will let Maggie take us out. So I'll say this is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt. Thank you. Woo -hoo. Woo -hoo. Thank you. That was really fun. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Really fun to have deep conversations about ancient Egypt. <laughs> it's what we, it's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's awesome. a funny way to phrase it because that's <laughs> ostensibly what we do all the time, but it isn't yeah. what we do all the time. So it's really not. It's nice we, to have we, no. this kind of opportunity. Yeah, we do. We do email all the time. Thank you to our listeners for your support, and please subscribe. If you enjoyed the show, share it with all your friends, and most importantly, leave us a five-star review. Send all those ancient world questions and topic suggestions for future episodes to ancientnow at substack.com. We actually do read them all. You can find info on all my books, articles, and upcoming lectures on my website. Just head to karakuniegyptologist.com. Amber puts all of that together. Oh my God, thank you, Amber. Check out our Substack Ancient Now at ancientnow.substack.com, where we share perspectives on all that history and archaeology news every week and continue the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off. Support the show by becoming a paid subscriber at our Substack Ancient Now community. This keeps the show free for everyone, and paid status gives you access to our archives. Thank you to our current supporters. I'm at all the social medias. Look for at Kara Cooney. Thanks to the team at Patina Productions for this podcast, which I must point out is wholly separate from my academic work at UCLA. See you next time on Afterlives of Ancient Egypt.